to Matt and Kevin Talk Church, two pastors, two old friends from two different denominations on two different coasts, talking about faith, culture, the Bible, and the ins and outs of church ministry. I'm Matt Curtis, pastor of Decision Life Church in Warwick, California. I'm Kevin Sheehan, associate pastor of Reformed Presbyterian Church in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast. Well, welcome to your audience. Today is March, believe it or not, it is March 1st. We are just March cruising, madness, if you will. cruising through 2021. That's exciting. So last don't week... Don't say that, man. Don't, don't <laughs> say that. Any, like, Hey, 2020 yeah. is hindsight now. Hey, yeah. so last oh week gosh. last week we talked on the... Sh- <laughs> Flag on the play. Anyway. Last week we had our friend Jason Stride on the podcast, and we actually brought him back again this week. So this is Jason Stride Part 2. The life of Jason, Jason Stride, Redux. He may replace me. He's so good. Anyway, <laughs> the Jason Revolution. Yeah, uh, Jason Reloaded. I don't know one of those. So anyway, so last week we had him on the show to Jason talk about Full Throttle. There we go. That's the one right there. Anyway, <laughs> we talked about uh, just how his experience cross cultural ministry, having lived overseas and then working with immigrants in the United States in Philadelphia and Boston and how it shaped his perspective on a number of issues, such as immigration and poverty. So this week, we're having Jason back on again to, to just talk more about some of his life experiences, and in particular this week, with his experience with adoption, and how it shifted his perspective on not only adoption, but also on race. So Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you again. You agreed to come back. Wow, that's, that's yeah. something. <laughs> it's true Uh, we'll see after this one how (laughs) right well anyway so um let's just start off jason tell us a little bit about your adoption story yeah so we are an adoptive family um, which means you know god has brought a lot of joy and beauty and redemption into the midst of uh, a lot of brokenness um and so as you know adoptive families know well there's a, a mix of joy and love but also challenge and pain and difficulty in that uh, that's certainly true for us we're also interracial family meaning uh, one of our children is african-american um, there's much to to talk about you know in terms of adoption uh, you know once i think it's important to say that the adoption stories of families are kind of sacred um, and and there's a need for privacy and space um, given to families as they share, when they share, how they talk about these things. Uh, so I'm actually not going to talk much about the details of the, of the dynamics of adoption, but um, more about what the adoption has kind of um, done in my life regarding, uh, you know, some of the, the issues of race and perspective. So, you know, being an interracial family has significantly kind of impacted my, my view on those things because I'm a, a father now. Um, and uh, I'm a pastor and a friend and these things as well. But Yeah, so obviously these are charged issues, any issues having to deal with race these days, uh, and especially uh, both in our nation and in the, the church as well. Um, but they're really important to talk about. Matt and I have clumsily talked about it in the past. Tell us a little bit about how being an interracial family started you thinking differently about race. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh... It's really interesting. One of the things that our agency had us do as we prepared for adoption in general was starting to wrestle with 
um, yeah, with the potential of becoming an interracial family. And there was a, 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 a lot of things to read and to study and get prepared on it. Um, you know, I, I had come in um, seeing racism firsthand in some of my experience in Mississippi, overseas, other cultures. You know, I was, I was probably pretty fluent with, with the reality of culture and traditions and these things. Um, you know, but adoption was really the first place where I began to uh, realize I needed a, a much deeper dive into the significance of race in America and not just in terms of some individual levels, but, but in a broader way. So I, uh, I, I, I came in probably wanting to be colorblind and probably influenced by a, a perspective on race that was uh, attempting to be colorblind. And then uh, in the preparation, you know, one of the, the terms that we used in, um, in, in the adoption kind of preparation was conspicuous families. Um, that when you adopt interracially, you become a conspicuous family, you stick out, right? And so from that moment of the adoption occurs, your world has changed and people look at you, uh, they notice you, they ask questions, sometimes really random, sometimes prying questions, sometimes uh, really biased questions, uh, but you're not, there's no hiding it. So part of the, the training was your life's gonna change. You're gonna be a conspicuous family. Are you ready for that? So that's something that, that you're gonna um, encounter. So. Uh, you know, that was one of the first things that, that started hitting me. Um, you know, another, uh, another reality as the adoption occurred was just starting to think about race in a personal way. So uh, I wish um, that I, I dove into issues of race and history and, uh, you know, the issues of race of present day America before I adopted. But reality is, is um, you know, once it became personal, that changed everything. Um, I started to think differently about what are the messages that my daughter is receiving in our world? What is society telling her? What's society telling my son about color and who they are in identity? So one of the fascinating things to think about um, is children's books. Uh, in, in our present day, uh, there's a, you know, great progress in, in children's books being um, having- Inclusive, yeah. Inclusive, right, diversity. Yeah. But if you think back 20 years ago, when I grew up, um, you know, some of those books, everyone's white, <laughs> right? Like the, it's incredible uh, the, the way they treat color or the, the um, you know, the, the whiteness of um, children's books, especially from the classics. Yeah. Like, uh, it's a, but, like it's the default. Right, yeah. exactly. And yeah. I didn't even notice that before. Yeah. Right? I did not notice that until I started thinking, you know, my daughter's reading this. I wonder what, you know, what's the message she's getting from this? Um, what's the message my son's getting from this? What, what, what are we, what, are, what is this conveying to them? Even like Lego figures, you know, it, toys, Barbies, any of these things, there's actually, you know, there's just, it starts becoming personal, right? What messages are carried even by these things? You know, those are some of the ways I just had to start thinking differently and, and, and my perspective was changing on it. Um, you know, uh, having to be intentional and in thinking about, or, you know, where, what's our church family going to look like? What's our, what's the school where we're going to go? So that there again is a, uh, there's a community um, where, where my kids um, fit in, where there's others who look like them, um, that a place that's safe. That, so 
the, the, the whole vision of what we were looking for definitely changed. We started seeing the world, I think, in really different uh, vision in terms of race. Now, when you adopted, well, both your children, you were living in Philadelphia, which obviously is a fairly diverse neighborhood, especially the part where you were living. So did the conspicuous family experience, what, what was your experience of being a conspicuous family, either in Philadelphia or just as you traveled? Yeah, you know, being probably, we were probably more conspicuous in the churches and the Christian environment uh, than the rest of, of Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is a diverse place. Um, there's a, a roughness and a, and a coldness to it that people don't pry into your story and who you are. People have kind of seen everything. Um, but also, you know, there's a beautiful acceptance of that, right? So, yeah, in uh, that did change the fact that it's obvious people are wondering <laughs> what's your story who what what's what's yeah what's here um you know is there uh, yeah just lots of you you just know people are wondering the questions yeah. um, because your older son i mean he kind of looks like you <laughs> he really right. does so he's not that's not a conspicuous addition to your family right. yeah yeah you know and so in general um with with, with race becoming personal um I realized I have so much to learn. Like, I just don't have a clue. Um, I need, I need to be reading. I need to be diving in. I need, I need, a, I need communities that are supportive, um, that, that, that can teach me, um, you know, probably the, the phrase that has been really helpful for me is I need to stumble awkwardly forward, meaning I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say things wrong. Um, I'm, I'm going to be wrong. This is a, a whole new phase of my own growth, but I need to keep moving forward and diving in. So I think that's really helped me is, um, you know, I think we all want it. We don't like being wrong. We don't like making mistakes in what we say or how we think of things. But I realized when it comes to, to race and being a father who understands the world and is able to, to uh, really help my, my daughter navigate it, uh, I'm going to have to stumble forward. So what do those conversations look like with your daughter at age five? Well, in some ways they're, they're like how, like how aware is she of some of these dynamics? Probably more than you think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, when you think of it because of the differences in our family, um, you know, color comes up really quick, right? Um, our kids, you know, recognize the differences are we're in a great school with diversity. So they're already wrestling with that, but color is just a, I mean, it starts out as a language to describe things without necessarily uh, overtones of, of value, but value starts coming in pretty quickly, right? Um, because of what our society kind of says. So I think the conversations have um, been, this is where we've had to, to really work hard at, we're gonna include in our library books that are really diverse, right? They're telling stories that are uh, diverse in character. We're going to listen to music, um, right, from a variety of people. We're going to, how do we figure out that, that our home environment proclaims a message uh, of the gospel, that there, there is a diversity and equality and a beauty, right, in, in everyone that God's created. And we're going to have to talk about it uh, as early and as frequently as we can. Um, again, stumbling forward in that, but, right. but knowing those are things we have to do. Right. Um, there's a, 
uh, trying to think of it. I can't think of the name of the, the authors, um, but he, he wrote a book called uh, Rediscipling the White Church. And his whole part of his whole premise is that we're discipled by our culture in terms of race. Um, and so by default, if we don't disciple our, our kids or ourselves or our churches in terms of the gospel's perspective of race, then um, the, the society will do it. So we have to be you know, super intentional in thinking about these conversations. David Swanson, a great, great book, just really trying to be intentional in, as a parent or as a pastor, um, really thinking about how do you how do you how do you intentionally have the conversations of race that lead uh, lead people to a gospel perspective on a biblical perspective? Yeah, yeah, we've had the opportunity to do that some just this past, this this past summer with everything going on mm-hmm. in the news in our country. It just, uh, I mean, our boys are six and three. Um, well, last summer they would have been five and three, so you know uh, they're still pretty young, uh, and they don't we don't have them watch the news very often with us. Uh, but there were also just some opportunities. I mean, we had a couple of, you know, protests or rallies or whatnot just in town. And we're two blocks from downtown from Main Street. We had them kind of march up our street, like right out our front door. Uh, and so it just, it's kind of lent itself to um, some conversations. And our five-year-old even asked us about it. Like, what is this? What's going on? And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, all right, well, let's just tell them. <laughs> uh, and as age appropriate a way as we could. And actually my wife kind of led that conversation and she did a really well, good job. I and mean, she's had a lot of cross-cultural ministry experience as well and, and working with minorities and living as a minority when she was overseas. And we do have some neighbors and one of his playmates uh, is a, is a black boy um, who lives our backyards touch, you know? So, so he was able to kind of make some connections mm-hmm. You know, and he's like, oh, you mean, you know, people like, you know, my friend. So, you know, it gets hard to really tell with a five-year-old, especially uh, not having much personal experience with it himself. But, you know, hopefully it was a way to at least begin to expose him to some of the problems um, and some of the, hopefully some of the solutions, at least from, you know, as we would see it from a biblical perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's in public school and kindergarten and. Not that we're like a super diverse area, but our particular part of town does have some diversity. Um, I know there's multiple languages being spoken when I'm standing in the pickup line, you know, with all the other parents. So we we're we're glad for that. You know, mm-hmm. we we value that. Yeah. But that's a different kind of conversation, you know, with our two boys who are white, growing up in a white family, yeah. than what you have to have. Yeah. But it definitely has made me think as well about what do, what do I want to convey to my son who is white, right? Um, and and so even to think about the message he's already receiving, uh, and and you know just again the dynamics of of seeing that if I'm not intentional and if we're not intentional about this, then they will learn something from the society about race, right? Um, well, and about everything. About well, everything. It doesn't just go yeah, for race. Like totally. that, that's yeah. that, that that's everything. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. the argument of the book is that just as we know, we have to be intentional about everything else, right? In discipleship, we have to be, you know, intentional about this as well uh, and yeah. discipling. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to take a break. And we have, we've got a lot more uh, to discuss, um, but why don't you go ahead and grab a cup of coffee or a tea or 
I don't know. Red birch beer. I'm really into red birch beer lately. Belly up to the bar and have yourself a sarsaparilla. <laughs> Let's do that. All right. Anyway, we'll be right back with more of Matt and Kevin Talk Church. All right. Welcome back to Matt and Kevin Talk Church. You get, like last week, you get three pastors for the price of two. This week, we have Jason Stride with us, uh, our, our friend, friend of ours, who is a pastor up in the Boston area who works primarily with Albanian immigrants. And today we're talking about this idea of adoption as um, Jason has adopted, uh, he has an interracial family. They've adopted um, two children, one, one white and one black. Uh, and just some of the uh, experiences and things that he's had to learn in that whole process. And it just kind of strikes me that I, that I sit here and as someone who has not gone through adoption, we have, we have two children not adopted. And, you know, I can, I know enough people who have adopted that I have some idea of what's going on with you know, the challenges with adoption and parenting adopted children. And, you know, I've talked to Jason enough and some others I know who have adopted interracially about there's some of the challenges there, but it's like, I don't have any experience with it. You know what I mean? Like it's not my personal story. So I just kind of have to sit back and, and learn from really from both of you in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, our audience may not know this, but I'm, both of my children are, well, one's adopted and the other we're in the process of adopting. We'll probably finalize later this summer. Our oldest is 13 um, and she's, well, she came into our lives in a really kind of miraculous way. That's a whole other story. We don't have time to get into maybe on a future podcast. Um, but one of the, one of the stories I always tell is, you know, before when we were just getting preparing for adoption, I would see books about adopting, you know, parenting adopted children. And I would just sort of roll my eyes at that as like, okay, as if it's different parenting's parenting adoption, you know, almost like defensive for adopted kids. They're not any different than, I mean, you know, I mean, I think my intentions in that were good, yeah. but it just turned out to be just totally wrongheaded uh, because parenting adopted children is just a different journey. I mean, their whole story starts with loss and rejection. I mean, not, not like that they've been rejected, but that's how they're going to receive it initially. And working through that is complicated and it lasts forever and the levels of pain and shame and all of it even look we got katie at two days old and it that's still an issue in in vitro trauma is a real thing and even if she doesn't remember her body does like that's a real thing the all of that has just played so we've seen behavior that parents don't it just different parenting strategies are required all of it and uh again this isn't, I don't have time to go into all the particulars of that, but it is just a different journey. For Jason, like we were talking about this um, offline, not only does he have like the alienation of their birth family and feeling separated from that and the difficulty and loss involved with that, for him with his daughter, he has a whole other layer of loss to deal with. Uh, the loss of a community like them or, or that they don't look like their birth parent and that his other sibling does like all of that is those are all pain points that have to be negotiated and worked through and all of it and so I, I say all that Jason just to really honor your story that like our story is difficult and you just not that it's a competition more than one thing can be hard um, but but you just have layers of loss and shame and difficulty to 
to, to work through. And so just thank you for sharing your uh, story with us. We really appreciate it here on Matt and Kevin Talk Church. Yeah. yeah thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great reason to be praying for adoptive families. And, you know, we need the grace of God, all of yeah. us as parents. But there's, yeah, there's definitely layers that are unique to, to these stories. Yeah, and I imagine no story is the same too. I don't want to kind of broad brush it. Be like, no. oh, every every adoptive story is the same, because I'm sure that's not the case either. Right. But anyway, Jason, like, what are the, some of the things as you've as you've had to work through this that you've, I guess, discovered or learned along the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the you know, the first books that I read that has really uh, been helpful. Um, Thinking about race and kind of the society we live in, especially the church, um, is a book called Divided by Faith. Um, it's written by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And they really, they use history and sociology and surveys and to really kind of get a, a, sh- a shape of um, this racial division that, was, that exists within the church today. Uh, and one of the, this, the takeaways for me was that white Christians kind of overwhelmingly think of racism in terms of individual actions and words and kind of responsibility. So we think about it on the individual level. And that was definitely me. Like that's how I, I thought of race was one person's actions, one person's words, one person's bias, right? Um, whereas black people over almost overwhelmingly think of racism in terms of institutions Uh, and systems, uh, that being their experience, that being kind of what the cry um, of the community is about. Uh, And and often, you know, as, you know, as a white Christian, it's really hard for me to understand that, like, uh, even easy for me to dismiss that or not even wrap my mind around what is it, what in the world does it mean that, that racism is institutionalized or it's systemic? Um, because I've never experienced that, right? Um, and it doesn't, it just goes against the individualistic kind of frame that we have of, of life. Uh, so that, you know, that kind of framing of um, what in the world is systemic or institutionalized racism, does it really exist? Where do I see that? That kind of set me off, I think, on a a kind of a quest, right, to explore what in the world is this uh, and where does it kind of show up in history and then what does it look like in in present day? Um, So that book's, you know, great, um, great kind of intro for Christians wrestling with the issue. Now, I kind of wonder if, so this was, I'm assuming the book's written talking about American, like kind of limited in its scope to the American experience, I guess. Yeah. So I kind of wonder if, you know, the fact that you say white people overwhelmingly think in terms of individual actions and words, is that just like an American thing? Or I wonder if that would be the same with like European white people, you, you know what I mean? Or somewhere else. Like, is that just because America in and of itself tends to be very individualistic in terms of thinking of the individual and individual responsibility? I mean, I think in the book, they're definitely kind of honing in on the American experience and the, especially the divided kind of Christian world. Um, why is 10 a.m. on Sunday the, the most segregated moment, um, you know, in, in, in Christianity kind of thing? So, you know, the history is really diving into the history of, uh, you know, in terms of America. The surveys are Americans, American Christians. But, yeah, imagine there's a Western connection to it as well. But I guess my also like the flip side of that being like, 
Um, I mean, so again, so the flip side being black people overwhelm when they think of racism in terms of institutional. Like I just, I kind of wonder if the black community in general just sort of thinks in terms of community, period. Whereas white people don't think in terms of community, period. Well, I mean, I think we should be careful speculating about what the black community thinks. Is. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. I'm wondering. Like, I'm just wondering. Yeah. Or just if we took this, you know, outside of just even the American experience, if cultures that are tend to be more community oriented would have an easier time seeing institutional or systemic sins of all sorts. Like as part of the reason we have trouble seeing it as white Americans, is it more because we're white or because we're Americans? I don't know. I'm just sort of wondering, throwing it out there. Because we see everything as just individual. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. And that would be there. That would that's part of the argument of the book is that it's it's a it's part of culture, it's part of worldview, uh, you know, that meritocrat meritoc meritocracy. How do we say that? Meritoc meritocracy. <laughs> well, I mean it goes back to what you were saying before about like, okay, what are the children's books we're reading about and what's the default setting that's being, like, it's not even intentional, like right. necessarily. Yep. That's yep. just there, that's in the background. And, and, and that is in the background means, but it's sort of by definition, institutional for want of a better term or systemic. I mean, yep. I mean systemic's maybe not the right word. Yep, yep. What, what things get platformed and what things don't. Um, it's usually not like someone twisting their mustache and going, I'm going to, I mean, that's usually not what's happening. It's all under the hood. Yeah. And so what's really, one of the things that was fascinating for me and I, and I continue to encounter this is that, you know, as, so as a, um, you know, white Christian who grew up middle-class and has really benefited from the privilege of that kind of background and upbringing it's really hard for me to even imagine what like a systemic or institutionalized racism looks like, right? Like that's not in my experience at all. I, you know, I, I could be and become whatever I wanted to because there's nothing impeding me, right? So, so in that place of privilege, it, what, where I see in my life, and it's one of kind of these, these things that works itself out is, is that I and others have a really hard time believing um, that such racism exists, right? Because it's not my experience. And so I, I can easily kind of, uh, oh, I think those voices are exaggerating things. Uh, they're kind of, they, they're actually, there's an even, oh, there's a, um, a reverse racism or there's, they're kind of blowing things out of proportion. Um, and that's kind of this place, again, for, for me was wrestling with, that is not my experience, but, but do I have the ability to start listening and saying, all right, what is this systemic, this institutionalized racism look like? Um, help me learn, help me understand this point. Yeah, I mean, I guess I had the similar, I mean, I grew up in Vermont, the whitest, <laughs> the whitest state in the country. So my experience with any sort of racial diversity or racial if you're from iowa anything. don't email don't email us in disputing it and, and, and like <laughs> i mean so just it was not part yeah. of my experience either and so yeah. i i agree i probably had the similar you know growing up and even you know early adulthood of just is you know is this more exaggerated than yeah uh it, it ought to be or, or whatnot i just think some terms are more helpful than others sure and so you know we throw around words like systemic racism or institutionalized, but people mean different things by that. And so I think a lot of times we're just talking past each other. So right. like, and 
like part of it is both like the white person in this conversation and the person of color in the having this conversation both have hearts that are bent and broken in certain ways. And so um, I think recognizing that it's not as if, okay, it's just the white person who's broken. I mean, they're both broken and both of their views on race and justice and all of it uh, have to be informed uh, by the scriptures with the help of the Holy spirit. And so I think both parties approaching this with a sense of humility and, and a posture of, okay, I need to, you know, listen um, is, is helpful. Now, um, the white voice has been platformed more and is heard a lot more. So um, maybe don't speak for, I mean, you know, speak first or, you know, maybe you listen more. So I think what you're saying is right. But I also think there's room to go. It's not as if white people have the market cornered on faulty thinking assumptions and brokenness around issues of race. Like, I think, I think that's um, where that, I think that thinking prevents discussions from happening right and so um i just i don't know well, i, just I mean i remember being in in west africa and people there saying you know if you're from us i remember just one woman saying if, I, if you're from a certain tribe then the taxi driver will charge you this much and if you're from a different tribe they charge you three times as much just just intertribal you know sorts of i you want to call that racism or whatever right. um but partiality maybe we'll give it a more biblical word right partiality um i mean it's certainly true in other places where my wife has lived where the majority culture is partial against the minority culture so yeah it's not like it's a uniquely american experience although there's something probably there are probably certain characteristics of the american experience that are not found elsewhere well is, and things that happened historically that just impact us even today right you know like if you're if you were property 180 years ago you couldn't inherit property. And so things like inherited wealth are an issue that helps us understand that, hey, maybe we don't all start at the same starting point. Right. And so you can have a conversation about that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to say like the manifestation of racism or partiality manifests itself differently in different places because of, right. like you're saying, historical background and whatnot. Right. Yeah, I, I think... For us, um, if you're like me, again, uh, you know, white Christian male, uh, middle class, uh, I, the, the reality is, is I, I don't know what it's like uh, to experience, uh, you know, racism um, and in the specific culture and, and place. And so in terms of learning, I think, you know, again, that for me, that, that big question is, is what is, so I get the, the, I know what individual racism looks like, right? But I think we can understand biblically total depravity. It just means that when the, the, the individual sin of, of a person is one thing, but, but that means that the, the corporate gathering of sinners um, produces corporate problems, right? It produces things that show up in laws or in practices and organizations and procedures, um, so when I'm talking about systemic racism, I'm just talking about that because uh, racism runs deep in American history. Uh, it shows up and it's it, the individual things also show up in, uh, in institutions and also the institutions affect the individual. Right. 
So let me give you an example because we're we're just talking about uh, you know kind of in the air abstract stuff because I've needed to know give me some examples what are some examples of what this looks like so one of my favorite examples is redlining so if you are uh, if you're not familiar with redlining redlining was the practice of the federal government the FHA the federal home authority from 1934 to 1968. And so the Federal Housing Authority um, created these maps of cities. I think there were like 200 cities, but Kalamazoo, Michigan. So here's where it gets personal from Kalamazoo, Michigan. You can look on the internet and find the redlining map of Kalamazoo, Michigan from the 30s. And that map shows uh, they categorized different, um, you know, the different neighborhoods with these color code schemes. So the green neighborhoods were the best neighborhoods. Um, these were up and coming, uh, high, you know, high capacity for wealth. And there, and you'll see in the notes, it said lacking Negroes, right? So very blatant, like there were no black people. So these were considered the best kind of neighborhoods. Goes down from there, blue. Um, these were, again, nice neighborhoods. They qualified for the federal loans, um, lower risk of, of kind of this infiltration by non-white groups. Um, then you get to, to these neighborhoods that were outlined in yellow. Um, these were either maybe they neighbored, they, uh, they were neighbors with black neighborhoods. They were uh, risky. Maybe they are in immigrant groups like Italians or, um, you know, different other groups. So they, uh, they, they were a lower grade. And then you have the red line areas. And these were the neighborhoods where there was already black families and they were, um, they were deemed undesirable. And so for sure, red, the, the neighborhoods in red and some of the neighborhoods in yellow wouldn't qualify for the FHA-backed loans. Now, these were the main ways that families bought houses was through the FHA loans. So these areas that were redlined, that were marked by, by red by that, the government, right? Um, these, were, these families within that neighborhood, the, the property values went down, right? Um, those who lived there couldn't get the loans. And so they were stuck in contractual kind of agreements or renting. So you have like, again, if you search redlining, you can find maps for all these Northern cities. Uh, that very clear when we're talking about 1934 up until 1968. And so that worked in collaboration with um, restrictive housing deeds. So this is when it was written into the deed um, of the homes of white people. They could, you know, again, by choice, but it was, many of the homes were written in these restrictive causing clauses that prohibited the selling of the house to a black family. And again, to go back and actually read. So this is where history is important because, you know, Jamar Tisby says, uh, history leaves receipts right? It's, it's fact. You can't argue with the notes in the redlining documents or the restrictive housing deeds. So by preventing Black families from moving into the neighborhoods that were desirable, it, it kept them out of the areas where they could actually get an FHA loan. So when you think of when was, when was um, wealth generated within American society, that period, 1930s to 1968, was huge in uh, income generation through home ownership. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, I mean, again, for me, I had no idea this occurred. 
and then to find the map of Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo, Michigan, to read the restrictive deeds of Kalamazoo, Michigan. There's a um, there's a light Kalamazoo Public Library video chronicling um, presentation of of the, how redlining affected the neighborhoods of today. So that's a, that's an example of a systemic um, problem, right? That wasn't just one individual; it was a whole system that the the Federal Housing Authority that implemented these practices um, that perpetuated division and discrimination. And look, you can't have sinful individuals and not have s- sinful systems, mm-hmm. right? Like, like it just stands to reason. It, it, sin isn't just individual. It's also generational. I'm going to read the prophets. That's yep. a deal. Um, and so if you have sinful individuals behaving sinfully, naturally they're going to create sinful structures. Yeah. When, I, when it was my hometown, um, it, it really kind of shattered the idea of a level playing field, right? Um, so my grandparents were immigrants from Holland um, and worked hard, really hard and bought a home um, and you know, really set my, the, the family and the generation up for thriving. And yet I wonder, um, you know, again, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued of what was the story in terms of them qualifying for a loan and how did that totally differentiate them from a black family that might've been in the same position of starting after migrating in from the South. So that, that my, you know, the, this level playing field, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, meritocracy idea that's been so ingrained in how I see the world reads something like this and is like, whoa, um, there's a lot more going on than I've realized. Yeah. And to me, that was the big lesson of 2020 in terms of all the, the social upheaval in 2020 was, you know, for me, it was, just, I need to do more listening. I need to do more reading Yeah, because I'm totally unaware of lots of these things. And I think I would have scoffed at it 12 months ago and say, ah, come on, you know, but you realize there's a lot of things out there that kind of serve as proxies for racism. You know what I mean? So it's like you write a law on the books that doesn't mention race, but everyone knows that's what it's really aimed at. <laughs> they just use different synonyms or, you know, even, even being tough on crime, mm-hmm. um, which sounds great. You know, it sounds like, Oh, sure. We won't be tough on crime, but often uh, to the detriment of the black communities more so than the white communities. Yeah. So someone's listening to this and going, okay, uh, 1968 was 50 years ago. Right. Like, like that's what, like, that's, that's what they're saying. So, right. so, so, so how do we, how, how do we respond to that? Well, first of all, 1968 is much, it's much closer than slavery. Right. So the, right. the, the whole idea is it, that was back then, right. 400 years ago, that starts evaporating when you see, man, that was until 1968. Right. Like right. that's, that's only one generation earlier. I, that, well, yeah, my, my dad's in high school. Right. So yeah. that could mean that the, the, the house your parents bought, they could buy it because of the, the because of redlining. Right. Um, yeah. So it explains the part of the huge the wealth gap between right now, black and white. Right. But yeah. yeah, I think it does. OK, so the question is, OK, does this stuff continue today? Um, and, and that's where. You know, again, we, I, I think I mentioned last time the, the helpful framing for me by Tim Keller of kind of injustice having the three categories, right, of um, personal choices, 
uh, crisis and um, oppression. So again, to understand this stuff is complex, right? So poverty and these problems are complex. So we're not gonna blame everything on systemic racism, right? We're not just gonna say every place has this going on, um, but we're also not gonna negate it as a potential problem. Uh, so I think there's resources out there, right? Um, Equal Justice Initiative, the work that Brian Stevenson is doing. Uh, he wrote ACT, uh, what is it? Um, Just Mercy, is that what you mean? Mercy, right? Yeah. Even though, like that, that work is exposing some of these dynamics that are, they're, again, they're not, they're, they're, they're more complex than just racial issues, but the issues of the incarnation of the incarceration system. Um, healthcare system, right? I mean, there's a lot of writing out there of the, the, the uh, problems within healthcare system in terms of its, you know, its availability to people of different communities. So yeah, I think, I don't think we, we're not looking for systemic racism under everything. And by default, that's the problem, but we're also not negating it's, it as a real potential problem in our society. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, I'm not sure how to ask this question. So in your work with Albanian immigrants, what are some of the experiences that they've had either in terms of, you know, being immigrants or classism or I guess sort of a racism, although they probably look white in a sense, but like, do, do those, how, how do they see these sorts of conversations? I'm just kind of curious because they're just coming at it from a completely different background. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's definitely ways in which, you know, different um, different families or different individuals will encounter, they'll encounter discrimination um, in a job setting. Uh, you know, sometimes within a union, there's kind of the, the playing favorites. Um, there, you know, obviously, um, you know, the having an accent um, can, again, kind of give off, uh, can be read by people as um, uh, uh, you're not as smart, you're not as capable. And again, we've talked about the person might uh, be a doctor and might know six languages, um, but just, it depends. It really depends on the setting, what they would encounter. Um, I, yeah, I think part of the challenge is, is that, you know, often an immigrant's ex, uh, perspective on racism will also be shaped by uh, what they hear and experience as they come here, right? So if, uh, an immigrant is part of a church um, and they're given a certain kind of perspective, again, on only the individual perspective of racism, then, then that's probably what they're going to think about. And they're probably going to uh, wonder, hey, I made it. Why can't these other people do it? Right. Um, if slavery happened 400 years ago, what's the problem now? So uh, I think for for anyone, there's a need to say there's there's deeper history there's deeper patterns. Um, uh, how do I be a student of what is really kind of going on? Um, if that makes sense. So I think a lot depends on what they're hearing and, you know, again, who they're kind of being, dis being disciple of by in terms of their view of race and society. Well, Jason is listening to all of this. Um, obviously it's a lot to kind of take in and digest, but trying to kind of wrap this or tie this all together. But so, <laughs> Obviously, a lot of stuff we're talking about um, are challenging conversations to have, even as adults. How do you how do you then parent a five year old uh, with, with all this kind of spinning around in your mind? Yeah, you know, very much. I think we feel our 
the need for the, the grace of God and for help from others, um, the, the importance of having a community that's diverse and that can um, encourage us and, and be teachers and examples um, for her. You know, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is the, the beauty and heritage of the Black church. Um, you think of the spirituality of a church that um, faced all of the, the really injustice from slavery through the civil rights years and yet held on to God and suffered and waited and proclaimed the gospel and worked for justice. Um, I would really love, I'm coming to appreciate that more and I would really love, uh, you know, for that to, um, to embrace that and to love that and to see the beauty of that, um, of just the heritage. I think it's a great lesson for all of us, even as we consider the reality of, you know, Christianity being more and more of a minority experience within um, within America, the right. potential of facing opposition or persecution. We have so much to learn from, from you know, Christians worldwide, but even uh, the Black church uh, in terms of how to thrive in the midst of challenge and, and opposition. Yeah, and that experience is probably the majority experience for most of God's people throughout history. Yeah. Is being in a place of either oppression or persecution or minority culture or something like that. Yeah. And most of the, you look at the most of the biblical authors, including the new Testament, the whole new Testament. And that's, that's always been the perspective. So yeah. the black church and other, and other faith communities can, I think more easily read scripture through that lens uh, than the white church has just because historically speaking, the white church has been the minority experience of God's people in terms of living in a place of, you know, some political affluence and, and, uh, and wealth. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's our need to be learners and in this moment is really significant. And I feel my need for that. And I think that just is a huge thing of how do we listen? Um, you know, dialogue right now is so polarized. Um, you know, if you, you, you know, it's the sense of we, we actually need each other. We need to hear each other. We need to, um, listen well we need to ask you questions um you know oftentimes you know if if a christian's interested in in pursuing justice and listening to the problems of people and communities and solving them and you know uh, and is driven by love for god often like from one side they can be dismissed um uh with labels of marxism or, or critical race theory or all these things right um there can just be easily a dismissing of, of one side and the other side, you know, we know that there are others who are really concerned with theological accuracy and um, the purity of doctrine. And so um, also not dismissing those warnings and those uh, that wisdom. So I, I feel the need of how do we actually be iron sharpening iron? How do the, the variety of perspectives on these issues actually listen to one another and together kind of move forward really in, in, in being, you know, light and salt to, to our world today. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's always the challenge is to ride that tension. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Christian life is just all about riding different tensions between one thing and the next. And I think in terms of these racial issues, that's probably the, the greatest tension now is preserving theological accuracy and, and desire for the scriptures to be upheld and uh, not not falling into just, you know, whatever the latest sort of faddish, you know, social theory is. But on the other hand, also not being dismissive. Right. And I mean, labels are lazy, right? Yeah. 
but actually doing the hard work of, of, of listening and, and hearing others' experiences and, you know, get giving them credit for it. It's like, okay, you are, you know, like, hey, black community, you're seeing these things that I'm not seeing, but well, and, and you I can, can be, be open concerned to that. about more than one thing. Right. Like, like it's, it, there's not like a binary thing right. happening there. Like, listen, you, you can acknowledge, for example, that black lives matter and that needs to be said because that hasn't always been apparent in our country and be deeply troubled by the organization black Live, black lives matter and be hesitant to identify with that organization for very legitimate reasons but it's not like in or out you know what i mean like and so we set up these litmus tests around these things you won't say this particular phrase so you're part of the problem well no there's i mean so i i just think we fall into the like there's two options right and oftentimes there's more than true two options we behave as though, you know, at the border, the only two options are children in cages or totally open borders, as though those are the only two possibilities. And that's not, I mean, that's not true. It's much more nuanced and complicated than that. Similarly, around these issues, either you're a social justice warrior and you're, you know, you're just out to, I mean, whatever, or you're, you're a theology bro who's just trying to show how smart and right you are. And I... I don't think those, I don't think it needs to be either or. I think there's room for thinking and discussion on both ends. And you can be concerned about more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's yeah. okay. Well, it's more than, I'd say it's more than okay. I'd say it's, that's our calling. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. to be faithful to the scripture and to be a f- faithful right. follower of Jesus, I think we have to do both. Right. But, you know, just different people are going to emphasize different things. And that's okay too. You know what I mean? Like some people are going to have an emphasis or passion in one direction or another, and that's fine. Well, and we want, I I mean, I want to hear from people that have had certain experiences or have certain gifts and talents have done certain studies. I want to hear from them. Yeah. But I want to make sure I hear from, you know, all parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again, Jason, for being on the podcast. Uh, I think you're our first guest to be on twice. If I'm not mistaken, although it's kind of it's kind of part one, part two. So I don't know if that uh, I don't know if that counts. We'll see. <laughs> I vote it does. <laughs> okay. I say the show title's got to be you know Jason Full Throttle, but Reloaded. Yeah, you know Jason Reloaded. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, appreciate you having on uh, again. You've had experiences that that I haven't had that Matt hasn't had, and so we just appreciate hearing uh, your perspective and insight and wisdom um, as you reflect on those experiences and try to filter them through the lens of scripture and what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So we appreciate that. Listener, we appreciate you. And uh, we hope that uh, as you've been listening to Matt and Kevin Talk Church, that you've been encouraged and edified and uh, given some food for thought. If you have any questions for Matt or Kevin or Jason, for that matter, uh, feel free to email us at mattandkevintalkchurch at gmail.com. You can always follow us on Twitter at MKTC. That being said, I'm Matt. And I'm Kevin. And we've been talking church with Jason Stride and talking about adoption and race. Be warm and be fed. <laughs> <laughs>